One of the most joyful of life's experiences is the birth of a baby. One of the first questions parents ask in the moments after birth, is the baby healthy? Well, even if the infant looks fine, they may be harboring hidden health problems that left undetected and untreated could lead to serious, if not deadly consequences. Traditional newborn screening tests can take several weeks to produce results. Rapid whole genome sequencing is done in under 24 hours, and that is the focus of this episode of The Pursuit of Precision, the Science of Advancing Individualized Medicine, created by the Center for Individualized Medicine at Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Kathy Werzer. I'm glad you're here. Our special guests are Dr. Stephen Kingsmore and Dr. Brendan Lanfer. Dr. Kingsmore is the president and CEO of Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine in San Diego. He leads a team of scientists, physicians, and researchers who are pioneering the use of rapid whole genome sequencing to enable precise diagnoses for critically ill newborns. Dr. Lanfer is a clinical geneticist and assistant professor of medical genetics at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Lanfer has research interests in inborn errors of metabolism and rare disease diagnostics. Such a pleasure to have you both with us. Thank you for your time and expertise. Thank you for having us. Likewise. Dr. Lanfer, for our general audience, let's define rapid whole genome sequencing. Well, it's the test that gives us the most information possible from genetic testing. Basically, when we have a sick baby in our neonatal intensive care unit, based on work that was pioneered by Dr. Kingsmore, we have begun the process where we offer tests where we can sequence the entire genome. That means all the DNA that the baby has. This is compared then to the parent's DNA and any interesting or concerning pathogenic variants or changes in the DNA that might lead to disease that we can act on. We can know these results in a matter of days. And this is really transformative testing. This is uh, incredibly different than what was available even just a few years ago. The first time I ordered whole exome sequencing was 15 years ago or so, and it took about nine months to get results. Now it's hours to days, and the difference that we can make by identifying these diseases fast is really dramatic. Dr. Kingsmore, whole genome sequencing has been used to uh, successfully diagnose inherited disorders, including uh, inherited cancers in pediatric and adult patients alike. And I think let's lay out a scenario for our listeners here in how rapid whole genome sequencing is being utilized to, to diagnose those critically ill small infants. Sure, Kathy. As you say, a baby being born is the highlight of a parent's life. For maybe 5% of babies, what happens next is the nightmare. It's that the baby is taken away from mom and dad and taken over to an intensive care unit because there's something acutely wrong. Maybe the baby's not breathing right. There are a whole variety of reasons why a baby's transferred from that situation to an intensive care unit. What then happens is there's a race to identify what's the cause of this baby's illness. Why is this baby not healthy? When it comes to genetic diseases, these are the diseases that we can identify by whole genome sequencing. There are 10,000 options. One of the triumphs of medical science has been that we've discovered all of these diseases. But the problem for a physician is, how do you sort out a diagnosis in a critically ill baby 
when you have 10,000 options. And that's where our whole genome sequencing comes in. It allows us to look at them all at once. And so we can rapidly go from there are myriad possibilities to this is what's causing this child's condition. And therefore, we can give treatment that's exquisitely targeted in many cases to that condition. Is there a specific patient that sticks with you when it comes to the success of this, this new testing? There are many, Kathy. So our cumulative experience over about a decade is about 4,000 families. And about once a month, we have a case where it just completely blows our mind. So the case in the last month comes from Stanford. I won't give a lot of details. So from Stanford University, we now have samples coming to our institute from all over North America. It was a little baby who was seizing. And this is a, a common reason for ordering a whole genome. So newborn with seizures, with epileptic seizures. And in babies, those range from ones which are very mild and easily treated to those which are pretty much untreatable. And we're very much worried about preventable causes. There are some rare causes of seizures in babies that are eminently treatable. And this little baby had one of those. It was a deficiency of riboflavin. It's a vitamin supplement, simple additive to the baby's feed. And upon being given that, the baby immediately stopped seizing and has a really good prognosis. Now, had that diagnosis been delayed, that child may have died or may have had permanent neurologic damage. Wow. Dr. Lanfer, many patients with uh, rare and esoteric genetic disorders may not, as you know, receive a clear diagnosis for years. And I'm wondering from where you sit, what's the patient population where um, this may be most beneficial? Well, I think the space where we have the most data, thanks to Dr. Kingsmore and his team, is the NICU, is the severely ill newborn babies. I think there's increasing data, though, that this is going to be broadly applicable in other populations, too. I, this morning, was seeing a patient in our pediatric intensive care unit, an older infant, not in the newborn, but had sudden and dramatic neurologic disease that prompted us to send the same test, rapid whole genome sequencing, with the same hope that we're going to get an answer. Now, this was sent just a matter of a few hours ago, but I suspect that tomorrow or the next day, we may have an answer for this family. And may be able to institute life-saving treatment. So I think the NICU is the obvious place to start. These are the most critically ill patients in the hospital. They are early in the course of their disease by definition, so we may have the most opportunity to alter that course. But this is just the beginning, and I think this will be broadly applicable to a lot of patients, both adult and pediatric. Dr. Kingsmore, you've said that rapid whole genome sequencing is a healthcare delivery system, not just a test. That may raise some eyebrows or furrow some eyebrows, depending upon the person. You want to expand on that, if you would? Yes, Kathy. When we started this, we thought it was a test. It's another diagnostic test. What we found, though, was that does not really save children's lives, that the medical establishment, uh, even very experienced doctors, still know very little about the genome and how to manage a patient predicated on genome results. And so what we started to realize, we need to engage intensive care unit teams. So doctors, nurses, social workers, genetic counselors, we need to train them to recognize 
the prototypic findings that would indicate, let's get a genome on this baby and let's do it in a hurry. And then we needed to train them what to do with the information once they received it back again. In most children's hospitals, there will not be a physician expert who is knowledgeable in this new field of genomic medicine. And for many of these diseases, especially the very rare ones, even if there is such an individual, they may not know immediately what the optimal treatment is. And so that's why we talk about this being a healthcare delivery system, that a failure at any step can result in a child who has needless suffering. And so we really need a delivery system that's end to end. Dr. Lamper, are you seeing this where you are at Mayo? Certainly. I mean, we have the uh, luxury at Mayo of having uh, a pretty broad range of expertise available to us within our own institution, but no place has experts in every possible diagnosis that we might find on genome sequencing. So it is really important to have those contacts within the both institution, but also in the broader community of experts so that we can make the most use of those answers when we get them. Mm-hmm. Uh, just after birth, as you both know, most newborns in the U.S. undergo screening tests for a variety of rare conditions. And I'm wondering what role is rapid genome sequencing playing in detecting maybe a wider variety of rare diseases? That's a very interesting question, and it's actually quite a controversial question right now. What we have been talking about is decoding genomes of babies who are suspected of having a genetic disease. And as Brendan has mentioned, that's not just babies, it's older children as well. But there's this intriguing question, which is what are we still missing? If we're only testing a subset of the babies who are sick enough to be in an intensive care unit, are we either testing babies too late who might benefit from earlier diagnosis or are we missing babies who never get that test? And so there are about seven groups worldwide who have started to ask that question. Should we be doing genome sequencing for certain conditions, not all 10,000, for certain conditions at birth? And we're teeing off what has been in place since the late 1960s, which is for a very small set of conditions, somewhere between 30 and 80 across the United States, we do screen every newborn to see, might you have one of these rare conditions and should we start treatment immediately? So we're now asking using this powerful new technology, should we be expanding this? Should we be moving it out to, to hundreds of conditions? And over the next few years, we'll know the answers to that. I think right now it's a little controversial. Just to be clear here, too, of course, as you know, newborn screening is considered one of public health's great successes. You don't see this replacing traditional newborn screening, though, do you, doctor? No, newborn screening as it's performed today is indeed marvelous, incredibly cost effective. What we're talking about is expanding newborn screening. So on top of what's currently screened for, to say, might a genome allow us to look at an awful lot of diseases that you just can't test for using those traditional approaches. And a great example are neurologic conditions. So the very seizure disorder type of patients that we were talking about earlier are not well screened for in general using these traditional approaches. Traditional diagnostic way that we approach newborn screening is really a biochemical analysis, looking at how genes work, not the DNA itself. And that's a really 
powerful tool. It is has transformed public health and saved countless lives. It's been an incredible success. And it's still always going to be a useful tool to clarify variations in genes that we're not sure if they're actually affecting how the genes work or not. There are many diseases that are important and treatable and don't have a clear biochemical correlate, the specific metabolite or specific molecule that's elevated that we can measure on a dried blood spot. And so this kind of technology would dramatically expand the number of types of diseases we could test for, and it would complement what's been done traditionally very nicely, I think, but it wouldn't replace. There are two different kinds of analyses. I was wondering, as I'm listening to you, if we add more disorders without proper funding and resources, what are the possible ramifications of that? So we need to do cost-effectiveness studies as well as what we call clinical utility studies of this new modality of a genome-based newborn screen and understand what it would mean for public health service budgets, for healthcare costs. Our hope, which has proven out in the intensive care unit, is that this might even be cost savings, but we don't know yet. So we need to model that very carefully and make sure that we do adequately resource this if indeed it makes sense to do so. I do know there have been some studies about the economic utility of rapid whole genome sequencing. What's the uptake among payers for this testing? That's a really good question, Kathy. And so if you'd asked me this just two years ago, I would have said it's it's very frustrating. But over the last year, Medicaid in six states, including Minnesota, have adopted new policies to provide this to uh, Medicaid beneficiaries, which is about 60% of babies. So in those states, it's now policy. In about half of those states, the test is reimbursed. In about half, it's not yet. And in addition, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield nationally is also making this a covered benefit. So there's a long way to go. Six states is not the entire United States yet. But we are seeing a change in opinion amongst payors, and there is good hope that over the next several years, this will become standard of care in ICUs around North America. Dr. Lanford, do you wish to make a comment about this? No, I fully agree. Every time there's new technology, new testing, it does take time for insurers and payers to sort of catch up with the new technology and no different than every other kind of new genetic test that we've seen in the past. This is slowly becoming recognized for the value that I think is obvious to those of us on the front lines. Every time I've done interviews about genomic testing, ethics always comes up, you know, and I, and I need to ask you both about that. Some of the ethical issues related to whole genome sequencing, when to use it, who gets priority, informed consent, you know the issues. Dr. Lanford, I'll start with you. Well, there's a, a myriad of different things we consider when we talk about this kind of testing with families. We can discover a wide range of information. We're looking for actionable diseases that we can alter the course of the condition for the baby, but sometimes we find adult onset conditions, or sometimes we find unexpected familial relationships that can surprise us. This is not different than what we see when we do genetic testing in older kids or in adult patients. And so I don't think there's a significant qualitative difference between other spaces where genetic testing is routine, but it is something that 
is an important part of the discussion and something that we emphasize with every family during the consent process and the discussion process is just how comprehensive this is and what what the range of different findings we might discover could be. Dr. Kingsmore? You know, this is very much in the news. Just last week, Chris Hemsworth was doing a show for National Geographic and had genetic testing to guide his health decisions and find that he's at risk of developing Alzheimer's and has now announced that he's going to step back a little from acting to figure out what this means for his health and his future. And so we're talking about babies generally and children, and they can't make up their own minds about their own genome information. Really, it's mom and dad who are making decisions on their behalf. And so we have to do a really good job as physicians of explaining to mom and dad what we're going to do and getting their permission to do their wishes. And parents differ. Some parents want to know about everything and some parents want to know only about things that are related to an acute illness in their child. This is another part of why we need a healthcare delivery system, because again, this is new for medicine. This is not a simple black and white decision, and it requires experts such as genetic counselors to spend time with mums and dads and uh, understand their wishes. And we continue to need to do research to investigate what parents are thinking and how things like background, uh, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, how these impact on a parent's wishes. So it's a very evolving area and one that we should be continuing to pay close attention to. Dr. Lanford touched on this a little bit about the secondary incidental findings of, of genome testing. Can data from genomic tests provide fruitful opportunities for research, even if the tests are negative for certain conditions? This is a complicated yeah. question. <laughs> we did one study where we asked exactly that. It was called the INSIGHT study. So we enrolled babies in our intensive care unit. And we looked not just at the babies whose doctors and parents got answers, so we diagnosed a genetic condition, but those in whom we did not. And the thing to remember about genetics is that it does have some power to rule things out, that where there's a specific condition that a doctor is concerned about, we can look at that gene in more detail and can sometimes actually rule out the known causes for that condition. And that can be incredibly powerful, let's say, in heart transplant, where a baby has a failing heart and the doctor wants to know, will this condition recur in the transplanted heart? That could be a contraindication to receiving that procedure. And so in a situation like that, it can be phenomenally useful to say, no, the child does not have a disorder that would recur in a transplanted heart. And we found that actually 80% of the negative findings were beneficial in the opinion of doctors because it influenced their thinking about what else might this be if it's not that genetic condition I was worried about. Dr. Lamford, would you like to make a comment about this? Yeah, I think the other thing that comes to my mind when I think about the value of an a non-diagnostic genome is our understanding of genetic contributions to disease is constantly evolving and getting more and more comprehensive. 
there are genetic diseases discovered today and yesterday that we didn't know about a month ago or a year ago. And tomorrow there'll be more. The beauty of a genome is that the child's genetics will not change as their phenotype evolves, as their clinical story evolves. We've had patients where we did genome sequencing a year, two years ago, five years ago, told families it was normal, continue to follow the patient, continue to relook at that data to analyze their genome over time. And now we've got answers. They were there all along, but because our understanding of the genetic contributions to the disease is continuously improving, not that we'll ever be done, but we'll have, there's always uh, room for new science. I think there, for many patients that have normal genomes now, there are answers in there that we will learn over time. And so the power of this data set is that we can re-interrogate it, relearn from it as the children get older, as their phenotype evolves, and as our community's understanding of genetics and medicine advances. I'm curious from Mayo Clinic's viewpoint here, Dr. Lanfer, what's Mayo doing to currently um, advance this particular topic? Well, we have a whole team of people involved in reanalysis of our unsolved exome and genome patients' data. We have frequently find patients where we do this kind of testing and we find interesting variations that we can't say for certain are causing disease or not. And so that team... W- can in some cases do functional tests. Sometimes we'll do animal models. Sometimes we'll partner with other institutions where there are other patients with similar variations in the same gene. But we really do our best to find answers even when the clinical test is not informative. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Kingsmore, based on your most recent publications, what do you think holds the most promise for the future of whole genome sequencing? That's a tough question. <laughs> The thing I am most excited about, actually, is that we are now entering a revolution in terms of new therapies, new interventions, that historically, most genetic diseases, and the reason we have trouble in some measure getting tests reimbursed, is this conception that a genetic disease is a fixed thing. It's not treatable. And that has always been a myth. But it was a widely perceived myth. But what we're seeing now, thanks to something called the Orphan Drug Act, is that many, many pharmaceutical companies are investing enormous amounts of their research into developing new therapies for childhood genetic diseases. These are sometimes genetic therapies, sometimes traditional medicines. But that's the thing which gives me the most hope is that we are starting to see diseases that hitherto were fatal. You know, spinal muscular atrophy comes immediately to mind. We now have revolutionary new therapies. As long as we can get that therapy to a baby in the first few weeks of life, that baby is going to have a much better prognosis than even five years ago. This is hugely exciting. And Dr. Lanfer, what excites you about this? Yeah, I fully agree with what Dr. Kingsmore just said. It's one thing to identify the cause of the disease, and there's huge value in just doing that. But to transform it and to cure it, that's the next step. And only by understanding the basic biology will we get there. And this is, I think, the key first step in that. The explosion of gene therapy that is happening now and is coming in the next couple of years is extraordinarily exciting. I think gene therapy has sort of been right around the corner for decades, and now it's actually here. But it's not just the traditional viral-based gene therapy. There's also antisense oligonucleotides and a wide range of other kinds of gene-targeted treatments 
that I think are really going to transform how we approach DNA-based disease. And I think the future is incredibly exciting for all of these patients because we're going to not just be able to diagnose them, we're going to be able to cure many of them. Many of them we can't right now, but I think it's easy to see that the future is coming where we're going to have better treatments. You know, I like to ask this question of uh, researchers because there's always a story behind the work of a researcher. Uh, there's always a spark that got that individual involved in whatever research he or she's in. So what's the spark that piqued your interest in uh, genomics, specifically this part of the field, rapid whole genome sequencing? Dr. Lanfer? I remember reading Dr. Kingsmore's work a number of years ago and just being incredibly inspired by what, what they were doing at Rady. I think they're the real leaders in it and have been for a long time. For me, seeing patients that were puzzles have a, has always been exciting. Seeing patients with these incredible stories of unsolvable issues and trying to figure it out and bringing all the scientific knowledge we can, whether it's targeted gene sequencing or chromosome microarrays or you know now transcriptomics and other kinds of really novel diagnostics to give answers for families who are suffering. For so many patients we see, they don't have an answer for why their child isn't normal, why their child is suffering or why their child is dying. And even if we can't change the course of the disease to give an answer, to answer that unknown is, it's incredibly rewarding and, and fascinating. Our tools are getting better all the time. Thanks to Dr. Kingsmore and his team, especially, I think we're now be able to give those answers. And now the exciting next step is, can we help, you know, in other ways? And so it, to me, that puzzle solving doesn't feel like work. It's always been fascinating. Dr. Kingsmore, I think, isn't the term diagnostic odyssey? So it sounds like what we're talking about here may well shorten that odyssey for some families. Yeah, my goal is to make that word no longer usable because nobody will understand what we're talking about. It's to eradicate the diagnostic odyssey. It has been around for far too long. And uh, God willing, uh, that will go into the dictionary as something which Nobody understands anymore. Why would there be an odyssey? Mm. By the way, what was the spark for your interest in genomic sequencing, genomic medicine? I'm old. So <laughs> I started off in genetics when we were studying mice because we couldn't study humans. I was 17. I went to the Weizmann Institute and I studied a funny looking mouse who turned out to have a disease called Chediakagashi syndrome. It took about 15 years, but we found the gene that caused that disease. And today we can cure that disease to some extent with bone marrow transplant. So it's only been in the last 10 years or so that we had something that was generalizable. Up until then, we did really cool science, but our ability to translate that into mums and dads and babies was extremely limited. And so now at the end of my career, we're finally entering a golden era when we can realistically think about offering this to every child who needs it. That's just phenomenal. I had no idea it was going to happen. I'm just very fortunate to have been at the right time at the right place. And you've done amazing work. Amazing work. We are so honored to have you here talking about this amazing research. We appreciate it. Uh, gentlemen, anything else you wish to add before we sign off? For me, this is just a very exciting time in this field. I hope anybody listening who's thinking about a career in medicine thinks about genetics. I tell every 
trainee and medical student and resident that we see everybody's most interesting patients. We have the most interesting tools for making the most interesting diagnoses and more than ever, we can help these patients in really dramatic ways. I think it's a really exciting time in our field and for our patients. Dr. Kingsmore. I would just reach out to parents who have a child who's ill. Don't give up, push in. Just remember your doctor may not know what a genome sequence is yet. They may never have ordered one. So sometimes you've got to be persistent. We had a recent case and it was granny who said to mom, I feel my granddaughter needs a genome. And because of granny's persistence, the test was ordered. And yes, the baby had a genetic disease that was not being treated adequately because they didn't know what was going on. So parents, you got to push on this. Does your child have a genetic disease? If you think they might, ask your doctor for a genome sequence. All right. We'll leave it there. Gentlemen, thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both for your time. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Pursuit of Precision, the science advancing individualized medicine. I hope you'll follow us wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. If you've got questions or comments, of course, we welcome them. Please email us at precisionpod, P-O-D, at mayo.edu with any questions or comments about the episodes you've heard. Thank you for listening and be well.